I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. You wanted more. Here's season four of The, the Connor, Connor and Smith Show. Okay, so today we Music are. Music by John <laughs> Today we are talking to. Uh, International star. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, amazing uh, collaborator. Royce Vavrek, um, and it was so great catching up. Uh, I met Royce when working on his show, uh, he and Josh Schmidt's show, um, the Mid Midwestern Gothic um, at Signature Theater in 2016, I believe it was, 17, 17. Wow, it's hard history, time, uh, memories. Anyway, we're gonna take a quick break. We will be right back. Uh, Royce, I'm here with my husband and co-host, Matt. Awesome. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> hey there. And our producer, Ryan. Hello. Hello there. Um, how are you doing, my friend? I am doing really well. I can't complain. How are you guys doing? Cold. Cold. Oh, um, my God. It's so cold. Where are you? I'm in New York. I'm in Brooklyn. So it's probably colder there. It's, um, I, I have absolutely no idea. Probably, but, you know, it's, it's a strange world we live in. So everything's sort of topsy-turvy. Are you near um, the bridge? Am I near the bridge? Um, which bridge? The Brooklyn Bridge. Um, I'm near the Williamsburg Bridge. Uh, close, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of close to the Brooklyn Bridge, too. So. Oh, fun. Yes. Um, so it's been... We are near the Memorial Bridge. We are. I love it. <laughs> we are near the signature bridge. Um, the signature bridge. Um, it's been a while uh, since we've spoken. Um, I we, I first met Royce uh, when we were working on production of Midwestern Gothic at Signature Theater in uh, twenty sixteen, I believe. Seventeen. Seventeen was it? I yeah, I just, uh, I had to remind myself uh, via the uh, Signature Theater website. Yeah, uh, so 2017, yeah, because it was in the early part of the year. March 14th. Oh, God, it wasn't even that early in the, okay. It's been some years. Um, it's been some years. <laughs> so so uh, since then, I see that you've won a little prize uh, for Angel's Bone. Yeah. Yeah, well, the opera won the prize with the composer, and I sort of went along for the ride. Uh, but yeah, that was an absolutely ridiculously exciting thing <laughs> to have happen. We're talking about the Pulitzer, uh, in case anyone's interested. That's uh, no big deal, you know, just some little award. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember um, listening to the announcement um, in the garden of a restaurant, and uh, and I was at a, a creative meeting, but I just I was you know excited to see who who the Pulitzer committee would uh, would honor that year, 
And I remember screaming in the in this garden um, and everybody looking and, and Paola Pristini, the composer, was was with me and she's like, he just won the Pulitzer. So I excused him. But it was, yeah, it was an absolutely insane, unexpected, um, really awesome thing that, uh, that sort of put my career um, or, or like, I guess, I wouldn't say it put it on track, but it, it um, give it a shot in the arm for sure. <laughs> it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. No. Now, can, can I ask some um, Pulitzer questions? Please do. So, did you know that you were up up for nominated or being recommended for the Pulitzer? I knew that um, I had a couple of entries that were being considered. A few entries that year that were being considered because uh, publishers submit. Um, so you know um, if you um, have been, um, if like the materials have been sent in, but you don't know if you've been a finalist um, or if you've won until the announcement. And then do you go someplace fancy and show up in a new outfit and have a speech? No, I, I wore a good hat. Um, as I want to do. And uh, I, because I, I didn't really win, um, Du Yun won the prize. So she went up and accepted, but she didn't even speak. Um, she she gave a cute little curtsy. I believe there's even a video of it maybe um, somewhere online, or at least a photograph of her accepting her certificate. Um, but she was really, really awesome and accepted it with, uh, with her beautiful personality. And uh, yeah, and then it was at Columbia. So we went to a big sort of luncheon um, at this uh, Columbia space. Um, and at my table, uh, we, we had a really awesome table. Um, Hilton Alls was at our table and his guest was Rachel Weiss. Um, so yeah, that was a pretty fun table to, to be assigned to. Yeah, I would say so. Um, it's It's gotta be, uh, first of all, like that, the name of that award carries its own weight. Um, you know, you have a beautiful website, P.S. Mm. Um, I, I was reading up on you today. Um, so th that happened kind of in tandem around a little bit later after Midwestern. Wait, hold, that... hold on a second. How was Rachel Weiss nice? <laughs> I, I had very little interaction with her, oh. but I, I do remember her smiling and saying hi as we sat down. <laughs> I, every time I hear her name, I sing Rachel Weiss. Rachel <laughs> Weiss. I, was, I would be afraid to like I do that. But anyway. After like a drink, yeah, <laughs> she would be delighted. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Steve. No, um, so so did did the uh, Pulitzer because Devil's Bone had already happened when we were doing Midwestern. Is that right? Um, yes, Angel's we premiered Angel's Bone, Bone in uh, two thousand and sixteen in January of sixteen. Okay, because uh, I remember you talking about it. Um, so the award happened kind of on right after uh, Midwestern. Yeah, well, I think the award happens in mid-April, or the announcement happens. So I'm guessing that it would have happened right in the middle of our run. Wow. And um, I do remember one of the first um, emails or, or messages that I got was from Matt Gardner. Um, and so I, we were definitely in the thick of, of Midwest. I guess if it was on my radar, it somehow I've forgotten it. Um, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, what is Angel's Bone about? So Angel's Bone is about a, uh, a husband and wife in middle America who are down on their luck at the top of the opera. Um, the husband is putting up a, a, a mortgage or like a for sale sign and he's getting a, a mortgage statements in the mail. And we know that they're financially strapped. Um, and then one day, a pair of angels are found in their garden 
these fallen angels. They're fallen in the brambles. And they uh, sort of bring them into their home, um, wash them up, clean them up. And, uh, and then the wife has an idea. What if they sort of pimped out these angels so that people could have an allotted amount of time to um, to do whatever they wanted with them. And so some of them come with spiritual intentions, some of them come with sexual intentions, some of them come with um, just physical and, and violent intentions. Um, and it, it shows the corruption of this seemingly beautiful, pure thing and, and the effects it has on, um, on a, a middle American couple. Wow. Yeah, it's heavy, it's dark. I love it. Is that an original um, story? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was inspired by um, lots of things. Uh, I remember my first meeting with Du Yun. She said, I really want to write a piece about prostitutes. And I said, well, I really want to write a piece about angels. And so I went away and came up with this. And we, we knew that we wanted to have a social element to it, uh, like to tackle a social issue. So um, it really became this allegory for child trafficking. Um, but yeah, it definitely has hints of the Marquez, a very old man with enormous wings. Um, but the story is entirely original. Well, it reminded me just instantly, not that it has anything to do with your work, but the, the, when the angels kind of walked amongst people in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ah, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so is it fairly safe to say, Royce, that you kind of traffic in some darker storytelling elements yeah well you know I, I certainly have that element of my catalog which is the the dark and and more uh um yeah the the darker underbelly of of human experience um but then i've also written things that are are intended for a broader more general audience i have uh, the house about a christmas tree that i wrote with ricky ian gordon um, that is really intended for families and, uh, and has so much of me, even though I, uh, my work tends to be darker and uh, a little bit more uh, difficult uh, to chew. Um, I, I found that I was able to put so much of my personal experience and um, into the story that was based on a novel by Gail Rock, um, but it felt like it was semi-autobiographical in, in many ways. Um, so yeah, and uh, 27, another opera that I wrote with Ricky and Gordon um, is, I, I would say it's a little less dark. It's, it's certainly more colorful and has it, Matisse and Picasso and Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to comb through. Oh, I did a, a piece. Well, that's actually kind of dark. I was going to say, Oh, Columbia, um, which deals with the, um, the, the American spirit of exploration. But um it, uh, it also deals with uh, space disasters. So there is a, a, it does sort of shade that piece. But yeah, I, I think that if you look at my work, um, even The Wild Beast of the Bungalow, uh, an opera I wrote with, with Rachel Peters, um, that is colorful and, and wild, but also, uh, um, uh, it, yeah, a little less, um, a little less uh, dark and gnarly, I would say. Um, I, I only ask because that's kind of the world that Matthew and I uh, live in, in our writing. And so I think that's what always draws me to your stuff, um, because it's kind of a, a similar shared kind of worldview of things that interest us. Um, yeah. You, you wrote well, a show I, I called I... Proving. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just thinking of, um, of Missy Mazzoli, one of my 
my nearest and dearest collaborators and one of my best friends, um, she says that uh, she's a death artist. And I think that <laughs> that's, that sort of defines a lot of, of my work as well. Um, you wrote a show called Proving Up. Uh, yeah. can, you, can you tell folks like what the basis of that story is? Yeah. It premiered in D.C. It premiered in D.C., yes. Uh, and the author that of, of the, the, who was the author that it was, uh, the story is based on their story? Yeah, so Proving Up is based on a short story by Karen Russell, who is this absolutely extraordinary writer. Um, she's probably best known for her uh, her novel Swamplandia, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize um, back a, a while ago. I, I forget which year exactly. Um, and uh, her imagination is just so unbelievably dazzling. And uh, I remember when Francesca Zambello asked Missy to uh, suggest some ideas for a commission at WNO through their American Opera Initiative, um, I was like, well, we should totally consider something of Karen. So I found two of her stories that I thought were just amazing. One of them, which was Proving Up, um, which is essentially a ghost story set on a Nebraskan homesteading farm in the 1870s. Um, and this family that's desperate to prove up and earn the title to their land after five really hard fought years of struggle. Um, the last thing that they have to do is, um, is sh uh, have the inspector come and show their sod house um, with its particular dimensions and a glass window. Um, that's a very particular requirement. And being good neighbors, they hear that the inspector is coming. And so they, they hear that he's coming to a neighboring farm. So they send their youngest son to go and deliver this pane of glass that they are sharing. Um, and then he is to take the window out of that farm and race it home with the inspector so that their family can also prove up with this shared piece of glass. Um, it's just, it's the most divine, weird, strange, beautiful landscape that Karen created. And, and I was so glad to get to, to riff and to, to create a musical language out of her story, which is just like, it's rich, rich language. I just, oh, she's everything. Yeah, um, so that's proving up. Go ahead, Ryan. Uh, so it sounds like you've done a couple adaptations. Like, did you approach each of them differently, of course? And how much do you change? And what's the thought process? For I that? think that every project has its own internal logic. And, and you guys have adapted quite a bit as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would love to know your experience on, on that. Um, but yeah, I tend to like, not that I'm deferential, but I do, I love how other writers, especially unlock my language. Um, I think that any writer can sort of get stuck in, in the rut of their own sensibilities. And, uh, and so what working with Karen's writing does is it provides me with these phrases that I would never write. Um, them blossom lyrically. Uh, so yeah, I, wouldn't, I don't know that I changed too much. Like I just finished an adaptation of George Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo for the Met. Um, and it's unbelievably true to George Saunders' um, text. Uh, it was really sort of retrofitting the language and using as much of, of that amazing language that George has uh, to create a, a more, like a slightly reduced world because there's so many characters in that novel and, um, and there are quite a few words, more words than I could put in my libretto. So it, you become a curator um, but then there are also moments when you're asked to um, extrapolate on ideas. So I think you just, you, you 
do what you can with the with the with the source material. I think you use it as much as possible, or I like to use it as much as possible. Um, and then there's a time when you just have to put it away and let the piece become yours. Um, but yeah, I, that actually, if I if I had a little bit more time, I would love to reflect on um, how how radical some of the choices were in my adaptations. I can't really think of any that have like altered the the chemistry of a work, but um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's just germane to whatever piece that you're adapting. It, it's a, every beast is a different beast. Um, and would you guys say that you all would also use, uh, you know, the language depending on what you're adapting as well, as far as like you know, monsters of the Validia Dotti and. Um, well, monsters wasn't so much an adaptation as much as it was like capturing a right a bunch of but different diary entries yeah huh? their words and some oh yeah i used a, well so monsters of the Villa diatari is about the the summer of darkness where you know byron and shelley um summered together in at Villa diatari and frankenstein came out of that summer um and so or the summer of darkness between 2016 and 2020 <laughs> <laughs> it's different that's a longer um longer summer but we used a lot of their writings, you know, Byron's work and and Shelley's work, both Mary and Percy. But um, yeah, I think I I, that was just kind of all about trying to, how do you write to bring like Lord Byron alive? Um, like how does Lord Byron speak uh, when he's not writing poetry? Um, that was difficult. Um, just trying to even to, uh, assume that that, you know, I could come up with something witty enough. Um, but adapting Turn of the Screw, I think, was the one of the trickiest things. I kind of had to update the time to the like the late nineteen, like, like nineteen eighteen, nineteen nineteen, just to make things kind of work for the angle I wanted better. But I, I like you said, I think everything you adapt, um, you start to find the patterns of the book and find the things that stick out to you and what what those themes recurring kind of inspire and that usually brings out you know lyrics or a song and then everything just kind of tent pegs from there right mm -hmm. yeah 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 um, um can i ask what you guys are writing right now oh. right now get yeah, uh, an adaptation um we're working on a adaptation of the legend of sleepy hollow cool awesome we have done it before um but we did it at our university uh, that we, you know, a few years ago, we went back to our college and uh, workshopped the show. So we're kind of doing another production that's going to be different than that one because we just haven't kind of found the sweet spot of what we want for it yet. So, uh, and funny enough, it's because uh, I need to stick closer and closer to the original subject matter and text. Uh, I think when I got away from it a little too much, it 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 was it turned into a story it wasn't. Uh, it's a very simple story, and the my frustration with it what with it was nothing freaking happens. Like <laughs> if you read the story, it's very dry. Um, there's no like there there at times. Uh, so many people have improved on it, but I think in in retrospect. There is a there there. We just didn't find the rhythm of the there. Um, so that's what we're working on right now. And so what was the impulse initially to um, 
to attack it or to uh, to dig in? Um, well, I guess um, again, we're always drawn to darker material. The um, the thought of, of of a stranger coming into a town that is very familiar with itself and doesn't really care for outsiders. Um, this convenient kind of ghost of of you know fantastical uh, origin that is is kind of it also it just represents so much of what America really uh, the the worst parts of what America can be. Yeah, yeah. It's the other. You know, it's the outsider. It's the thing that everyone's afraid of. And speaking of America, Royce, <laughs> America. You were born in the land of Canada. I, I guilty, guilty, yes. And so, what was your journey of? Uh, take me back when Royce was a <clears throat> was little. I mean, how did you get this? Uh, did you always see yourself in this um, this beautiful palette of creating? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so when I was really little, like two or three. Um, the the lore, or at least the story that my mom says, is that I would dictate stories to her that she would write down, and they exist in this uh, this box of of treasures from my from my childhood at home. Um, so, from a very very young age, I was telling stories, um, and then I I grew up on a farm, a grain farm, wheat, barley, and canola, um, and but I was lucky. I was extremely lucky to be born into a family. Uh, that really valued music. My mom played piano for Sunday school, um, and my dad was in a band when he was uh, a teenager um, with his siblings. Um, and yeah, music was really important. So we all knew, all the kids, uh, my brother and sister and I, knew that we had to take piano and that we could only stop taking piano lessons if and when we took up another instrument, which turned out to be sort of a um, not necessarily true. My brother uh, asked for drum lessons and my parents sort of draw, drew the line. Um, <laughs> I don't know that they wanted the banging going on or, or if it was just that they were worried that it was a fleeting interest. Right. You can um, play them when you have your own house. Exactly. <laughs> and my brother was very much a sports guy. He, um, he played all the sports. And, um, and so, yeah, he had other interests. Um, but so I took piano from uh, when I was five. Uh, then I started taking singing lessons when I was in uh, fourth grade or fifth grade. Uh, and my singing instructor, uh, instructor, this woman named Ellen Otterson, who um, passed away last year, um, she really uh, started regaling me with stories of her like very short period that she spent in New York. Um, like it was a year or two. Um, and she would just tell me all of these stories and sort of sell New York as this mythical, amazing place. And I knew from a very, very young age that I was meant to be in New York. Um, but my parents were also very um, open and honest about the um, the financial realities of going to school. I thought that, uh, that I was going to get out of Canada by going to undergrad somewhere in the States. Um, but they really encouraged me to do my undergrad in Canada. So I went to film school in Montreal at Concordia University. Um, spent four years there, took up a second major in creative writing. And um, and then I was introduced to New York halfway through my studies in Montreal. And I I knew immediately. The, the first time I came down to New York, I saw uh, Gypsy with Bernadette and Avenue Q. Um, 
that's pretty much the the most amazing introduction to to Broadway um, yeah, that, I could have ever asked for. <laughs> um, and uh, I went to a, a party at the Roxy um, with Beyonce performing. It was right after, um, or right when Destiny's Child was sort of um, trailing off, I believe, and she was beginning her solo career. Um, but I totally remember being taken to the Roxy to see Beyonce back in like 2002 or three. She was probably singing Crazy in Love. Oh, I hope so. I, I can't remember anything but the, the sea of, of shirtless men <clears throat> and, and Beyonce up <laughs> doing her thing. I, um, I visited Montreal and it's a pretty fantastic town, right? Oh my God. It's the closest thing we have to Europe in, right. in North America, for sure. Well, I guess you could also say that Quebec City is also pretty amazing in that regard. Um, but yeah, no, Montreal is awesome. Um, I really um, started through my undergrad thinking, I just have to get to New York. I have to get to New York. I have to get to New York. And it's funny because now all I want to do is, is find excuses to go and, and have a weekend or do projects up in, in Montreal. So it's, it's a gorgeous town, my goodness. I'm very lucky to have had it for those four years. Well, when, when, when I was there, which was very brief, and keep in mind that I was schooled in public schools in Virginia, so I knew nothing. But when I got there, I was like, why is everybody speaking French? We in Canada. <laughs> but did you, did you pretty much uh, have to know a little bit of French at times uh, around the city? I, so I became sort of, um, yeah, I wish I spoke more French. Um, and the truth is, is that because it is a bilingual town, um, if you don't speak good French, people will generally shift to English just to because it's easier. Um, so my French is awful, but I I love the language and uh, and really should invest into into learning a bit more because I I, I lament that I speak only English and, and sometimes uh, not not great English at that. <laughs> Which, um, of course, uh, is not how it works in Paris, because when you're in Paris, if you don't speak French in, in some places, they would just look at you. Oh, I had I had a good experience um, in Strasbourg recently when I was trying. I, and I, I didn't even try to really throw on a, a, a good accent, but I, I did enunciate and pronounce the words somewhat correctly. And she just like refused to get me something. And I, I don't even know what I what I asked for, like a croissant with almonds or something. And she thought I was looking at her like an alien. It was really, um, really something. So I I know I, 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 I've been there. <laughs> um, <laughs> Were you there to perform at the cathedral? <laughs> I, but I, I do think that the, the Quebecois are, are really quite lovely people. Um, and I do try to spend as much time up there. One of my dear, dear, dear friends, the amazing soprano Amelia Watt, has a beautiful um, family home up in Saint Sauveur, which is about an hour north of Montreal. And uh, so we we try to go up there as, as much as possible to uh, enjoy that beautiful little ski town. And and there's such a rich musical history there with the like Rufus and Martha Wainwright and their families um, stay there. They have a beautiful family home and it's just, it feels rich with history and, and musical heritage. Um, so I think you should work on your own festival of your own work and some of it be premiered in French. Oh, okay. I, I would feel like I, I need a translator. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't call us. <laughs> Do you guys speak any other languages? Um, um, 
Yeah. Well, I I was pr- I was pretty fluent-ish in Spanish from being a restaurant worker and taking it for five years, um, but not so much anymore. And I I was taking French on my Duolingo app. Yeah, I, so I that's a no. Yeah, it's a no, <laughs> Royce. I I took French for many years, um, but I've forgotten most of it. As most Americans, I mean, I've traveled quite a bit and. I try to learn like five phrases and when you go visit and most of the time after the second thing I'm trying to say, they're like, please just speak English. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite places to escape to, if I ever have just like a, a bit of time and I need to root myself somewhere in Europe, um, I find that I always go to Prague. Um, and there's some, the reason, there are many reasons why I love Prague, but you do feel like, um, nobody speaks English there. It, it is really sobering to feel like you are um, at uh, a, a linguistic disability um, in some cases. And it, it, it just, it's a good thing to feel, um, to just to know that you're not always going to be the dominant um, communication device. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. and, is, and is there something about Prague that even seems... It's like the new Paris, right? But but doesn't Prague even seem older than than... Most of Europe, isn't Prague like like super old? Prague, there are elements of it that are old. Yeah, the Prague Castle is is quite uh, quite old, and uh, and there are, are beautiful buildings. It does. It feels like Mozart could walk out uh, from behind a building at any moment. The, yeah. the buildings are all these beautiful pastel colors. Not all of them, but there's you know a, a good portion of them have this just beautiful coloring that feels so. Um, 19th century or 18th century opulence um and the astronomical clock is is really beautiful so there are all these like these things that are definitely older than anything that we have here in the states um but it also feels quite modern and it's a loud city it's very alive and but it's one of the best places to see opera um i just i absolutely love going to the opera in in prague and um it's it's really never let me down and it's so cheap um for like relatively fancy tickets I, I pay like 37 dollars or something to sit in my favorite balcony seats um that are like the first or second balcony it's it's really crazy these uh, government um sponsored organizations that don't have to um charge an arm and a leg to to let an audience in um it's it, it makes, sort of equalizes it for everyone and and prague's such a, a cheap town uh it's it's a really great place to go and have your your dollar stretch isn't that such a shame not to get into the weeds with other stuff, but it's such a shame that all of us as artists realize, of course, the huge impact on society when you uncover a civilization that's been buried in the deserts of blah, blah, blah. The things that you look at are the arts, the politics, and the, the discoveries, the inventions, and things of all creative things, yet... Mm-hmm. In America, the arts is not helped as much as other countries. It's looked upon in a whole different um, business where you do, it does become the, the I mean, I don't want to poo-poo Hamilton, but, you know, when someone said that, you know, years ago that the tickets for Hamilton were blah, 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 you know, hundreds of dollars, I was like, well, I, I guess I will be going to see Hamilton. <laughs> Did you wait for Disney Plus? I sure no. Well, you know what's funny is during the pandemic, um, I was in bed. I think the whole time. I think. I think. Yeah, <laughs> from Thursday to Thursday, 
and someone had um, leaked it, the entire thing on YouTube. And I thought to myself, okay, clearly this is not the show. And I started the show on my phone. On YouTube. On YouTube. And I could not stop watching it. It was so amazing. Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then we did watch it on Disney Plus twice. Yeah. yeah. Um, you just anyway, so the right what time announced itself? Alive. Yeah, piracy is alive. So what? What are you working on? Well, I just um, oh, what am I working on? I am going to. I'm at sort of like a, a little bit of a lull, um, in the sense that I'm going to start a brand new project um, right away. And not an adaptation. It's an original piece um, called Agnes for the Icelandic Opera um, with the composer Daniel Bjarnason. Um, so I'm going to start working on that. I am also working on a, an adaptation of a very famous Canadian poem uh, called The Cremation of Sam McGee, um, which is a poem that like a lot of kids learn to recite uh, from memory in school. Um, and it's, it is about a cremation, which seems a little strange, but it is this absolutely insanely important Canadian work. Um, and the Canada Council gave me and uh, my composer collaborator, Matthew Ricketts, uh, some money to start that project. So I've been doing over the past uh, few days is sort of putting some finishing touches on uh, on a couple of arias for that. And we're gearing up to do a recording at first um, in, in March, in early March. So um, working on that. Um, my Lincoln and the Bardo libretto uh, would just that and I'm working on a treatment for a new dance project uh, that is a little um, early to to talk about but um, uh, it's I'm working on a lot of ideas with uh, my collaborator Guillaume Cote who is uh, the principal um, dancer at the uh, National Ballet of Canada um, and he and I uh, worked on a, a new dance piece called Crypto that will tour Canada um, this year uh, with music by one of my favorite collaborators Mika Carlson um, who uh, that's my last year was, uh, was writing two big librettos for him. One uh, that is, uh, based on Lars von Trier's Melancholia for the Royal Swedish Opera. And the other, um, is an adaptation of Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander for the opera house in Brussels, Belgium called La Monet. So those were the things that were really rattling in my brain over the past few months. Um, but I'm going to be diving into, uh, that, oh, and... Um, some work with Paolo Pristini is coming up, and uh, and some work with Julian Walkner, an original piece that sort of inspired by my father and his suicide over a decade ago um, and his uh, decline uh, due to alcoholism. Uh, so I'm really that will be a very meaningful piece for me to uh, wow. to start working on. So yeah, lots of things. My my brain is a little scattered here and in, in there, but. Uh, I, I'm, I'm good at focusing when, when the project's in front of me, for sure. So when, so when we say libretto, yeah, and everyone, you know, the, the non-artists um, sometimes get confused. Clear up for us what a libretto means. Basically, I am responsible for all of the words and the drama. So I write the script for operas, and I will write a scenario. So I'll write the sort of the outline of a story for dance. Um, or... Um, sometimes I will, yeah, but I also do lyrics for concert works and you wouldn't call that a libretto, um, but those words sort of function in the same way. So I, I like to say that I write words that are usually meant to be sung. 
and the drama that surrounds it. Right. Um, you uh, you worked with Josh Schmidt on Midwestern Gothic in I 2017. Did. Yeah. Um, can you tell us how that came to be, that project came to be? Oh my goodness. Well, okay. So I was working at the public theater in New York. Um, I was Ted Sperling's assistant for three years. And one of the coolest things was just the, um, the revolving door of composers and artists that would come into, uh, into the theater and into our office on a pretty much a daily basis, my goodness. Um, and one day I remember uh, Michael Halberstam and Josh came in to talk about their musical, A Minister's Wife. And I had seen um, Adding Machine and had just been completely, like, I think it's still one of the five greatest musicals I've ever encountered in my life. Um, I think it is absolutely a masterpiece. And so I knew that I had to work with, with Josh. He's just, he's truly one of the most brilliant composers out there. Um, and so I have, I had, and I still have um, a small opera company that really does concert works of, uh, of projects in progress. Um, and we're, we're going to do more production based stuff, but in the, over the past, um, decade, we've done little concerts here and there. Um, and it's a, a company that I run with a, a college friend, Eric Hertig, and the Tony-nominated uh, soprano, Lauren Warsham. Um, and uh, we wanted to write a song for Lauren to sing at one of the concerts. And so uh, we wrote Mama Cries. Um, and that song really became the, um, the nucleus of the show. And, uh, and so then I think Josh took that to signature and uh, the commission was to write a few songs, a handful, like four or five. And so we wrote four or five songs and created a bit of an outline and, uh, and then signature greenlit it. Uh, and so we wrote the whole thing. Um, and, uh, and then we got the call from, from Matt saying that he wanted to direct it and that he was really pushing uh, for a production. And uh, yeah, and so Signature came on board, and and then that's where uh, that's where the magic happened. But it, it was a, a rather long period of of time between the Mama cries and uh, and the premiere. But uh, yeah, it it also seems like it happened in a flash. I got to do the uh, workshop um, as well as the production, um, and I remember the workshop uh, just going oh my God, this is some of my favorite, like, whisper quiet. Um, who, was the, who, who was the amazing female girl lead? She was young. Um, in, yeah. the, in the workshop or in the premiere? In the, in the, in the premiere. Um, Morgan. Um, Morgan, oh gosh, um, Keen. Yes, and then yes. That, that lead, the lead guy. Um, he went um, on to do Tim. A, yes. It was an amazing cast. Wasn't Sherry Evelyn in it? And Sherry, oh my goodness. And, and uh, Rachel. Rachel Zampelli. It was an amazing Rachel cast. And I, Sam. Oh, <laughs> Sam Ludwig, that's right. It's such a genius. Uh, and Bobby Smith. Bobby, Bobby Smith. Smith. It's just, it, for an introduction to the DC theater scene, um, for me, I just, I lucked out. I hit the jackpot. <laughs> you guys are all absolutely extraordinary. And we were in such amazing and capable and just genius hands my god and i'm happy that some of my taxidermied animals ended up in the show truly one of the most amazing moments <laughs> with that reveal 
Um, where do those taxidermied animals live in your home? Um, currently in the office. Okay. Um, we got them for another show. We got them for our um, adaptation of Night of the Living Dead. Um, and they have been with us. I think they ended up in Turn of the Screw as well. Um, they've kind of been in a, a couple of shows. Um, stars. They are absolute stars. And and they were given to us by, we're not hunters, clearly. Um, we, they were given to us by people who were like, these are creepy, you would like them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you could fool some people, though, with some good flannel. Yeah. <laughs> and some of those flappy, like, Elmer Fudd ear cap things. You know, we've got all that. I mean, I'm from Western Pennsylvania and Matthew's from Winchester, Virginia. So, which is Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's basically the same thing. Yeah. Well, I had a program for Midwestern Gothic. I was not a part of the process, but it was just a fucking uh, amazing masterpiece. I mean, the choices and the music and the story was just unreal. I remember, I remember being places, there yeah. and felt so charged from um, just the the show. Oh, thank you, thank you for saying that. It was an incredible night uh, of theater. You know, um, oh. one of those movies you watch that you think about for three days, kind of thing. Oh, that's awesome. That is so awesome to hear that. Yeah, it was a really profound experience for me, and I got to put so many of my favorite influences into that piece. Um, and did you guys hear that we had another production that happened in London recently over lockdown? No. Yeah. So the Royal Academy of Music chose it as a piece that their graduating students would perform. Um, and they had to, it was all figured out after um, all the kids were sent home. And so not only did the kids have to learn the piece, which was slightly augmented because it was a cast of all boys, I believe. Um, and... Uh, they had to um, film themselves at home and they were sort of guided by the director to place the camera in different places. It's really insane that these like really young adults were able to not only perform the piece, but also become the entire crew of, of this uh, presentation, this, this production. Um, and it's really, it was really wild. Um, I think there might be some clips of it available on online. I don't know that the whole thing is available anymore, but um, it was just, it was a really, really awesome opportunity for these kids to dig into some, uh, some new musical theater, um, but also for us to see it through a completely different prism. Um, this, this boy dominated cast um, and then it became sort of an identity politics piece. And it, yeah, it was, it was really, really, really cool. I would love to see it with all like male. That would be interesting. Yeah, the next production in America should just have the the hired boys. They should play oh, all the roles. My God. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many times on social media somehow a Midwestern Gothic thing pops up uh, every once in a while. And there's always a thread of comments from people who either did the workshop or like Emily Zickler who did the workshop and then understudied. Like there's always like a, a lyric train of like whisper quiet or something um, because it's just that good. And once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head. Um, and in such a good way, I mean that. Um, but that was a, that was an incredible experience. It was so great to, to get to meet you there and 
work with you and my gosh, um, all the other stuff you've done uh, was the most recent kind of besides the like online things was breaking the waves. Your last like thing before pandemic. Uh, bre- uh, ooh, uh, so it, I guess it depends on by what metric or by, you know, um, what standard uh, breaking the waves. We actually, I was just in Switzerland a few months ago because oh, okay. uh, we had a new production of it open up in St. Gallen. Um, which was exquisite and uh, and beautiful and so different from any other productions we've had before. So it was just it was thrilling to see a, a completely new interpretation. Um, but the the last world premiere that I had before lockdown was Jacqueline, um, a small opera for Tapestry Opera up in Toronto. Okay. Um, that uh, was about Jacqueline Dupre, and it was for uh, a soprano, the divine Marnie Breckenridge, and a cellist, a solo cellist, Matt Heimovitz, um, and was uh, composed by Luna Pearl Wolf. So that was the last thing that had, it was like February of 2020. Um, but then I also, I had songs in Dublin um, in late February. So at the Dublin New Music Festival in Ireland, I, I presented some songs with Daniel Bjarnason. So I guess those would actually be the last things that I got to experience, the last new things before lockdown. But, but yeah, things have been slowly like opening up and we've been able to do um, things during lockdown. I, I wrote an opera about Ellen DeGeneres and the puppy episode. Oh, what? wow. That, yeah. yeah, that changed my life when I was 14, 13, 14. Um, and so I wrote a piece that's a uh, it's really, really touching that uh, it, it doesn't actually talk about Ellen DeGeneres all that much. It talk, it's more about the uh, the lives of just regular people living in a small little American town and a boy who sees it as representation and, and has a crush on on his neighborhood uh, friend and, um, and an, a grandma who is senile and who is living through memories of a of a young when she was in secretary school and a, a young woman that she had a crush on as well. Um, and a, a, a lesbian woman who uh, is about to leave her husband to go and uh, live her truth uh, with a, another woman. Um, and it all happens on a night, uh, on, on the night of the broadcast of the, of the episode. So there are interludes that Ellen, or the, the comedian as she's called, um, sings, but it's, it's more about these, these other fictional characters. It's almost exclusively about these fictional characters. Um, I love that. I love yeah. that. Um, do, do you, uh, so I guess we've heard what you're working on next. So is, is uh, RoyceFavrick.com the best place to follow you, get information on you? Or where else do you like people to follow you? Um, that's, that's good. Yeah. Um, I think Instagram is also good. I have a couple of accounts on there. One that is sort of like just my, my personal normal account. And then I also take street photos, which has been sort of a passion of mine for the past four years. Um, so you can check out my my photography, which is sort of a, a visual diary of, of my adventures and often includes um, collaborators and, and just slices of, of life on the road and in New York. Um, but yeah, Instagram is great. Um, Facebook, although that seems so archaic these days, but I'm, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm there. Twitter, I'm, I'm there. I'm pretty um, all over the place. <laughs> so um, take your pick. Well, Royce, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, Sorry about some technical issues that oh happened, no uh, but, but we uh, we love your the stuff that you work on. We love your vision, and just I couldn't wait to talk to you and kind of explore some of the uh, the the things that you've worked on over the years. All incredible, um, and we feel very lucky to have talked to you tonight. We appreciate oh, it. 
It is my pleasure. What a thrill. And please come visit me up in yes. New York when the, when the time is right. When the time is right. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we keep hoping for that right time, you know. It'll it's, come. It'll, it'll come. come. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, Royce. We will talk to you soon, we hope. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have bye. a good one. Bye. Take care. Bye. Well, thank you, Royce, for talking to us. We really appreciate your time. Um, just an incredible body of work. And uh, got so much more coming. So much more Down coming. the pipeline. Yeah, we appreciate your time, buddy. Thanks so much for being with us. If you want to learn more about us, please visit www.connorsmithmusicals.com. That's Connor with an E-R. You can find us on Facebook and TikTok under Connor and Smith, again with an E-R. Uh, please rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. It really helps us a lot. Out. Oh, God. Helps us out a lot. I talk for a living. It helps us out a lot. Um, and thank you again just for being with us. Uh, the start of another week of more shows to be released uh, into the weekend. We hope you're enjoying them. Please share them with your friends. And... Go Team USA. I know. I'm so worried about McKayla. We have, we are, we are now in the eighth place of the medal ranks tonight, and we've got five total. No golds yet. Yep. Silver and bronze. Yep. Yep. Um, so, yeah, if you're watching the Olympics or if the Olympics are, yeah, I guess. The, or watching you. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> All, All right. right. Bye, everybody. Have a great Bye. day. Bye.